Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, the number one value investing podcast in the world, sitting next to my co-host, Jeff Cannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well. How do you like that? Number one value investing podcast in the world. Good. Self-proclaimed. Self-proclaimed. And I think, uh, I do believe it to be true, so we're happy that everyone is joining in with us. We switched it up a little bit. I'm sitting on this side of the table now. Jeff's obviously over there. And we are going to be recording our screen for our Snap Judgment podcast. So this is the first time that we're going to be doing this. So bear with us. We're trying to get better. Um, but I think there's a lot of interactive things that we can do going forward. Um, you know, Jeff and I were talking uh, yesterday about how we could start to just have like hour long podcasts of really just like going through a 10 K like from start to finish. And, you know, just a whole, uh, I guess different ideas that we're kind of thinking to, you know, make the podcast better, make the YouTube videos better. So make sure you subscribe to everything. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Um, and of course hit that subscribe button on the podcast side as well. If this is the first time that you are tuning in with us, check out all of our work. Jeff is writing up 250 plus different write-offs this year. I'm not going to stop saying it. He hasn't even <laughs> written up one this year yet. I don't think so. You better start put some pep in your steps on. And so go to focuscompounding.com. And if you do sign up, use the podcast promo code, which is podcast. And I'll take uh, $10 off of the monthly subscription price. Um, follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. If you like free stuff, go to the website, focuscompounding.com and sign up for our email list, uh, which we're going to hopefully start to send out emails more often. Um, but the best place, I think, to get all the content that we put out is definitely on Twitter, which is at Focus Compound. And if you're interested in the way that we manage capital, Focus Compounding Capital Management, um, reach out to info at focuscompounding.com. Uh, we'd love to start the conversation on potentially managing your funds. We both have a SMA arm and a hedge fund, uh, so we uh, definitely could find something that would, uh, you know, hopefully work well for you. So in today's podcast, like I said, we are going to be going over our snap judgments. This is going to be an interactive side. So if you want to look at what we're looking at, uh, go over to YouTube at Focus Compounding. And the first stock that we're looking at is Vertra Inc. ticker VTSI, market cap thirty three million. Um, let's see, Vertra Inc. develops, sells, and supports use of force training and marksmanship, firearms training systems, and accessories for law enforcement, military, educational, and civilian use worldwide. So this sounds pretty cool. It sounds like uh, they have like simulators and stuff like that. Um, I've actually looked at this company before briefly, okay. and if you go to their website, they kind of demo out exactly what they do do. Oh, okay. And it's literally like you're in like a a warehouse of some sort or like oh. a big room and they have like these screens, you know, kind okay. of all around you where I guess they're training people for like military, police, you know, and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, PE, this is shown on QuickFS, negative 26. So we could dive into that. Okay. EV to free cash flow, 18.5. EV to sales, 1.8. I'm uh, kind of going to try my best to highlight and let's see what I could do here on the, I got this little handy dandy uh, pen to be interactive. It's pretty okay. cool. Um, gross margins, 
10-year gross margins over here on the key statistics is uh, 62%. I'm rounding up. 10-year median margins on EBIT is 12%. 10-year margin on free cash flow, 4.3%. Uh, return on equity, 10-year median margins, 20. I'm sorry, 30.2%. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 10-year CAGR on revenue is 20%, going from $5 million in 2009 to $18 million in 2018. So this is a pretty interesting business. Looks pretty high growth. Um, thoughts on the company? Have you looked at it? Are you familiar with it? A little bit familiar. Someone asked me to look at it. Um, so a few things stand out. One, the price on an EV to sales basis is not crazy if the EBIT margin is uh, 12% is the median. So if you have 12% median EBIT margin and you have 1.8 times sales, that to me sounds like a pretty normal price for a stock. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we notice the free cash flow margin is very different, which would make sense because the revenue growth is so high, right? Um, yeah. Asset growth is high, but not as high as revenue growth. So um, that might mean that they're reporting a lot of earnings that isn't turning into cash, but that makes sense if you, for most businesses. For like growth growing and stuff. Because yeah. Yeah, you're financing the growth. Um, the return on invested capital is all over the place, as you can see in that graph. Um, and there's something obviously going on with the earnings, where in the most recent year, uh, we've got basically negative earnings being reported, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the operating profit in the last year? Um, let's see. Operating profit looks like it was $1 million. Okay, and then yet their actual earnings per share is negative? Mm-hmm. So something below the operating profit line happened there. Um, so I don't know what that is, but you'd have to look into that. Uh, they have had negative operating profit in at least one year that I can see here, right? In 2011, they had negative operating profit. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. And then 2012, it looks like they made nothing. We can't really tell, right? Is that right? That yeah. Zero? Mm-hmm. Okay. So there were two years there where they basically didn't make money. So I'd focus in on those things about 2011 and 2012, and I'd focus in on why they um, have something happening below the operating profit line here. Um, sounds kind of interesting business. Uh, it is very small. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, we look at companies that are this small sometimes, but a lot of people don't have experience looking at that. So you got to be a little careful that way. Yeah. We could look at, uh, let's see. Um, uh, let's see. The beta is 1.12. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, you could, I'm sure the share turnover is, you know, probably Three. a lot, I'd imagine. Oh. But uh, yeah, 1.12 beta. So I don't know necessarily if we'd be particularly interested in it. I mean, it's a micro cap. Uh, but I could, you know, say right away that I know we probably would not be interested in it because of the lack of predictability in the business, right? Yeah, the share is outstanding. Uh, yeah, I could get that. Let's see. We go key statistics. Uh, market cap, we can see it there. Okay. Um, let's see. Beta, like I said, 1.12. Shares outstanding, 7.75 million. Okay, so it seems like it's turning over um, pretty close to one time. It's not a very low turnover stock, mm-hmm. if I'm right about that. The average volume is said was 30,000. Yeah, 34,000. Right, so that means 100,000 would trade every three days. There's probably 80 three-day periods in a See this? We could, we could do this. People could see what we're doing. 34,000. Okay. Multiply that by 252, which is the rough trading days uh, per year. So 8.5 million roughly trade per well, year. So shares are saying 7.75. Like yeah. 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 Uh-huh. yeah. So, um, so that's a pretty high turnover for a microcap stock. So it seems to be a pretty popular microcap stock. We focus on more illiquid microcaps and certainly microcaps that don't get that much attention. So this one is getting a fair amount of attention for being a $33 million market cap stock. Mm-hmm. Um, it, interesting, and I'd be interested in what they do, obviously. Um, I don't know anything about the industry, so I, I don't know. Uh, but it does it does definitely look um, interesting to me in terms of how it's grown over time. And um, Look at this. We could go to the, their website. Okay. 
see if they have like pictures of see literally it's literally yeah, people literally like fire right. and yeah. stuff like that see it looks like they're in a thing and they have the like these massive yeah. uh, screens stuff the world's first 300 degree force options training simulator pretty yeah. interesting right seems like a type of company a vc would love to invest in yeah you know mm-hmm. okay next company psychomedics corporation this is a stock that jeff has written up on the website um, and we have talked about this, so definitely go to Focus Compounding and sign up if you would like to read Jeff's thoughts on it. Uh, market cap fifty four million. Um, uh, current PE it is trading eighteen and a half times. EV to sales one point three times. Ten year median margins on EBIT twenty percent. Ten year median returns on return on equity twenty seven percent. Ten year CAGR on revenue six point four, going from seventeen million in two thousand nine to forty three million in two thousand eighteen. Right. So based on the numbers that we see here, I would be super interested in the stock if I didn't Which know anything Which is why we were super interested it. in it. Yeah. Right. So if I didn't know anything more, if you just look at this page and ask what's a stock that I'd be interested in, it's this. So it um, is not, it trades a fair amount of stock, if I remember. Like it has a pretty high share turnover um, for a, a such a small stock, $54 million market cap. Management doesn't own a ton of it, but it does pay everything out in dividends and has for a really long time. All the true free cash flow and dividends. Mm-hmm. So... Um, if you look at this stock, um, so beta 0.74, you want me to get the share turnover sure. for you? So, um, it, and I took data even that goes back before this because this company has been filing for a long time. So I went on Edgar and found data going back all the way, um, to whatever, deep into the 1990s. Um, so it's very consistent, uh, growing company, uh, doesn't grow that much, but it's very consistent earnings, pays everything out in dividends. It's like literally a hundred percent per year. Yeah. Which for a company with a $50 million market cap or whatever is a lot, just mm-hmm. like it is for a company with a $30 million market cap. Mm-hmm. Um, so the problem here, so this company does hair um, uh, drug testing using hair, um, which is a better way of doing it for most things. Uh, it's more accurate. It's more likely to detect. Um, and it is more expensive, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, the problem here is that they have a big Brazil business, uh, which is uh, there are rules in Brazil that require truck drivers there because there are a lot of deaths on the road and things like that to be regularly tested using um, hair uh, tests instead of like in the U.S. where they use urine. Um, and so this company was doing a lot of business there through a distributor there, and that distributor was sold to a competitor. So they then signed an agreement with them that's a non-exclusive agreement where they can both uh, – buy from the competitor and from this company, whereas they used to be buying 100% from this company. So Brazil is a big part of their business. I forget exactly off the top of my head, if it, I think about a third mm-hmm. of their sales um, and potentially a little bit more of their, their free cash flow um, because there'd be some uh, negative operating leverage happening once they lost that much business, you know, because mm-hmm. I think they had like one dedicated employee, one dedicated board member focusing on it. The company really just does the testing in some labs that they have. The company's headquartered in Massachusetts, but if I remember right, their lab is in um, California that they do it. And so they have a bunch of lab equipment stuff in California. They do that. They're not big on the sales, the marketing of it, except marketing to like uh, Fortune 500 companies or whatever it says there, you know, big, big accounts. That yeah. Way. So, uh, it'd be a pretty big loss for them if they lost all the Brazil business. And so it might not be cheap once it loses that. We can go back in time and see before they had Brazil, it wasn't that many years ago, and see that they were 
profitable and they have plenty of free cash flow and all that. So it's not like they're dependent on this Brazil business to be making money every year and to be paying out a dividend. It's just that this goes from being a stock that's clearly cheap. If we see the EV to sales is 1.3, right? Mm -hmm. And the EBIT margin is 20%. It turns it oh. into free cash flow pretty uh, <laughs> well. <laughs> we can use the free cash flow margin if we want to use that instead. So the free cash flow margin has been 13%, right? Yeah. And the EV to sales is 1.3. So that means on an on leverage basis, you'd be making a uh, 10%, uh, you'd be getting a 10% free cash flow yield. But actually that exaggerates it, uh, uh, understates it by a lot, because I know that the only reason their free cash flow margin is that low, which is still a good free cash flow margin, is because they invested heavily in Brazil. Uh -huh. like they put a lot in Brazil in a couple of those years. So yeah. the last 10 years is being skewed by that Brazil business. If they didn't have the Brazil business, or even if they had it, just getting it after you're set up, you don't need to put more into it. So very cheap based on the um, recent numbers, but we know that they're likely to earn less in the future than they did in the last um, several years. Why is drug testing through hair follicles better, like the best way to do it instead of urine and stuff like that? Well, so one, they can get a profile of how often someone used and stuff like that. Two, it's a much longer period of time that they're doing it for. The one thing it can't do, so one, it's more expensive, but the one thing that it can't do is it can't detect very recent hair, uh, drug use because I think it would be unreliable for about a week because the hair would be below the skin, right? It starts growing below the skin. So uh, you can't do something like, can I test if someone... Um, uh, was using a drug the day that an accident happened or something like that. But what they care about and what I think their clients care about is habitual drug use by potential employees and things like that. And that, for that, hair is really good. And they even have one they designed for, uh, for alcohol. Um, I think their technology is very good. Mm -hmm. From what I've looked at a few other companies in this industry, not doing hair tests necessarily, I think this company, though very small, has some really good technology and processes and stuff for doing this if people really if clients really cared about detecting drug use like that yeah um i think this is definitely a possibility of this is the company they go with if you actually read the shareholder letters mm -hmm. from the chairman i think every single year he he, he said how important like hair follicle was mm -hmm. to um like the accuracy of drug testing i read every yeah, single letter they're basically competing with urine testing uh -huh. i mean that uh, well, that's really what they're doing this company's doing it's not all about um there are other companies that do the testing that they do um, they're basically companies that do it like, um, uh, like mm, they do like a whole panel of different tests and so they outsource it. So like they do urine and blood and, and testing and stuff for, for a company. And so they also throw this in as one of the things that they do competing with them, but they yeah. don't focus on developing it the same way this company is focused only on, uh, drug testing through hair. So I think that they're in a strong position that way. But I think there's a lot of competition with urine testing yeah, and sure. that that's a problem. I don't know that it'll, you know, we've talked about this a little bit. I'm not sure that um, most clients are going to be as serious about spending more money and detecting as much drug use as they would detect using hair as opposed to urine. Yeah, I worked somewhere when I interned my senior year of high school and they told me that they don't drug test there because everybody would be mm -hmm. uh, fired. You know. Yeah. Now, plenty of companies can detect drug things and still. Um, it was a brokerage firm. Hire the employees. Yeah. But um, but for some things, it's pretty serious, like the truck driving one and some stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. There's some safety things. Yeah. Got it. Next company that we are going to be looking over, BJ's Restaurant Inc. Okay. So this came up on our screen. Jeff and I were driving. We were doing some scuttlebutt yesterday, mm -hmm. two and a half hour drive. And I said, have you ever been to BJ's? Yeah. And he said, I hadn't. I haven't. And I love BJ's uh, restaurant. And you, uh, I said you would like it. I mean, they have a lot of beer on tap. It's a cool place. The food's really good. Um, ticker is BGRI market cap, 798 million. 
BJ's Restaurant owns and operates casual dining restaurants in the United States. Its restaurants offers pizzas, my favorite food, craft and other beers, appetizers, entrees, pasta, sandwiches, specialty salads, and desserts. It's kind of like Cheesecake Factory, I feel like, okay. where you could go there and get almost anything that you want. Um, uh, the current PE on it is it is trading at 19 times. Uh, EV to sales, 0.7. 10-year median margins on EBIT is 5.7. 10-year median margins on gross profit, 9.3. Um, 10-year median returns on return on equity, 9.5. 10-year median returns on return on invested capital, 11%. 10-year CAGR on revenue, 11.6%. Not bad for a restaurant, right? Going from $427 million in 2009 to $1,117 million in 2018. Okay, so... 10-year uh, K on EPS, 20%. Okay, so it's a lot like Cheesecake Factory by some of the so, things you said. It was founded in California. Can I front you, run yeah. you a little bit right here? All right. One another company we have to go over is Cheesecake okay. Factory. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I figured might as well just... I, we're kind of going with the food theme here, so All right. why not? So it has a lot of similarities to Cheesecake Factory. We'll just leave it there. Yeah. You'll see. You'll notice it when you see things like how many stores they have, their market cap, where they were founded, and when, stuff like that. Yeah. Um. So... Uh, it's interesting. Uh, obviously, the, some things that are standing out are the incredibly poor returns on capital, mm-hmm. right? So if we look for a restaurant, I'm assuming they don't own these properties. Could be wrong. But if they don't own these properties, those are very, very bad returns on capital. So if we just walk through, um, do you have the return on, can you give me just year by year some maybe return on equity, return on investor capital? Just use return on equity. That's fine. It'll be the highest. Uh, looks like 5%. I'm around. I'm around down. Around up. Nine percent. Ten percent. Nine percent. Five percent. Seven percent. Fourteen percent. Fifteen percent. Seventeen percent. Eighteen percent. Right. So until the last few years, not acceptable. A price to book of almost three times for something like that. Not accept. That's way too much to pay. You'd want to pay below book or something for it. Something seriously wrong with the business model in terms of generating adequate. What about gross income? margins? See how they've gone from forty percent in two thousand nine. It's got to be an accounting change. And I noticed that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't see what else. The so I was gonna say, what the heck happened be. there? Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, you can break down. Um, we've talked about this before, like prime costs and stuff like that. Break down a restaurant in different ways than what we're seeing here. I don't know about the accounting things about why that happened with the margins, um, but I assume that's got to be an accounting change. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe they franchised some things or something like that. Obviously, that would have an effect. Those, uh, I don't know. Um, EV to free cash for eleven times. Yeah, so here's the thing. The EBIT margin, 5.7%, right, mm-hmm. is the long-term EBIT margin. That looks fine, uh, potentially, we'll see, um, against the EV to sales, right? Yep. But the part that doesn't look okay is what we're seeing with the returns on capital historically versus things like the price to book and stuff like that. You can't pay this high a price to book versus that low return on capital in the past. Um, so I don't know exactly what's going on there. But uh, I'd be very cautious because if they were growing this fast and they're succeeding this well, it just seems like a business model that at the store level must be not amazing in terms of generating high returns. Um, it obviously grew very fast and maybe it's successful now. But look, how many stores does it has? It already has like 200 stores, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so 208, it, yeah. All right, so that means even 10 years ago it had a lot of stores. I mean, the revenue just... And these are not small stores. I mean, right. if you look at... That could be I, I, don't, I don't know how much it is to open up one, but what, what was cheesecake? How much is it to open up a cheesecake? Do you remember that? Is it like... It's more than... It's like what? Could be all in eight to ten. I was gonna say ten million. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's ten million. I mean, BJ's is. I don't want to say it's. Pro- I, it wouldn't surprise me if it was close to that. These are kind of like bigger restaurants where they have a lot going on, um, and it reminds me very much of that type of like style of restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. It, 
it seems like just there might be too much capital in this business at the store level. But I mean, it's succeeded the last few years in achieving the returns, the returns we're talking about. But if they're leasing these places and all that, I don't know. Um, that's tough. The, on the prices, like in terms of EV to sales, EV to EBITDA looks good mm-hmm. um, on what they're doing now. But I just would need to learn a lot more about the store economics. I want to look at you know presentations from the company about what they say the returns are. You know um, when they talk about like four wall returns and things like that. What's the EBITDA type returns that they get on the business right away? Also things like how long, like Cheesecake Factory. We know as soon as it opens, basically hits what it's going to hit ever yeah um some restaurants take a little while to do that i don't know which this is uh so like if if your new stores aren't doing as well as your older stores then that's good from a investment perspective whereas if your new stores on day one are doing as well as as they're ever going to do then these returns are kind of low mm-hmm. until the last few years yeah. got it next company bng food inc ticker bgs market cap about a billion uh bng's uh food inc manufactures sells and distributes a portfolio of self uh, I'm sorry, of shelf-stable and frozen foods in the United States, Canada, and Puerto Rico. Its products include frozen and canned vegetables, oatmeal, and hot cereals, fruit spreads, canned meats, and beans, bagel chips, spices, seasonings, blah, 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 blah. Uh, current valuation ratios, it's trading six times earnings, EV to sales of 1.8, right in line with our EBIT 10-year median margins of 18%. Uh, EV to free cash flow, 17.5%. 10-year median returns of return on equity, 17.5%. Return on invested capital, 5%, uh, 10-year CAGR on revenue, 13%, 10-year CAGR on free cash flow, 19%, 10-year CAGR on 25, I'm sorry, on EPS is 25%. Revenue has gone from 501 million in 2009 to 1.7 billion in 2018. Um, yeah. Uh, I think we need to read some of the brands for people to understand what this company is. Okay. So cream of wheat, right? Yep. Um, they also have a green giant, right? Yep. I know uh, that. Okay. What, what other brands there do you recognize? Do you uh, recognize B&G? Uh, let's see. Yep. Okay. Um, let's see. Mrs. Dash. Duh. Come on. Best seasoning <laughs> in the world. Um, let's see what else we got here. No, no. Okay. So some problems here are I recognize these brands as existing and being in stores. Yeah. Um, they're, you know, they're the kinds of things that Kraft or someone like that would own and mostly not the leading brands of a company like that. Uh So they're okay, but even when we get into things in categories that they probably do pretty well in, they're not exactly, we don't, this is not Heinz, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, This is not Philadelphia cream cheese. Uh, This is- You don't don't like a little mustache? Come on now. yeah, but it's not McCormick. Um, there's some other <laughs> leading things in some of these that uh, I I think they're fine. These aren't nothing brands. Okay, I look mean, at I this recognize- McDonald's. Okay, McDonald's. All right. I do recognize them all. Okay, or most of them. But these are um, uh, a lot of these are older brands, and they're fine. But they could be second, third, fourth brands in their category. Um, and I don't know that they're necessarily always going to have the ability to be the most expensive of the thing that they're in. I just mean we're not seeing brands. This is not like, um, like I said, we're not. This isn't Heinz and Tabasco and whatever things that we think are going to lead in their category for a long time. Look at how volatile the EPS has been: sixty-three percent, fifty-two percent, fifty-five percent, fifteen, negative eighteen, negative twenty-two, sixty percent, forty-one, eighty-eight percent, negative twenty. Well, we can get into some of this yeah. stuff, but I have some ideas of what's happening here. Okay. Okay. So, what are you looking at right now? What do you think? What's your first initial impression of that last ten years of what's going on? Um, looks like uh, they've been growing a lot, 
right? I'm assuming they probably took on a lot of debt. There we go. Because that's the word. There we go. There we go. There we go. Um, A plus student right here. (laughs) Yeah. So, for instance, how do you know that? And I'll tell you why I know that. Go ahead. So, first one that I noticed was 14% annual growth in assets. If I'm reading that right. Yep. Yep. That's insane. Uh Uh, For a food company, right? Because the market is growing. Uh, maybe at inflation and stuff, it's not even really. But even if it was, it's growing like 2%, plus population growth is like 1%, maybe 3%. And I don't believe that the U.S. grocery market really grew 3% a year for the last 10 years. Yeah. So what we're talking about is them growing in real terms like 11% a year, more than 10% a year, faster than their overall market. Mm-hmm. So first of all, unless you're gaining a lot of share, and we just read what brands there are, so I don't believe they're gaining a lot of share, um, it's debt. Then we can look down here at the bottom, of course, and see how low the return on invested capital is and how high the return on equity. That's is. what I was looking yeah. at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So an easy way to do that, and the return on, or that is, tenure is assets. to use equity over assets. Now, when I look at it, I tend to focus right away on the growth rates, especially in things like assets. One of the concerns here, of course, is that the assets grew as faster, faster than revenue. Now, free cash flow and EPS grew fine, but what they're probably doing is borrowing and buying, right? So they're borrowing and then they're buying something, which isn't necessarily bad, right? It increases your bargaining power with the customers that they have. That's the main thing that a company like this is problem is right now, mm-hmm. right? So if you own these brands 40 years ago, you were selling to smaller customers than you do now. Whereas now if you're selling to Walmart, Target, Kroger, a few others there, um, that's adding up to a third of your sales or, or more or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and that used to not be the case at all. Um, so that gives them more bargaining power with you. And, and that's a problem. Costco, you can sell their own stuff like that. So, uh, I, that's the problem for all these food companies, right? They like to take on a lot of debt, acquire a lot of things. Um, this one doesn't look that expensive, does it? No. Yeah. So generally food companies are really expensive and this doesn't seem to be. So EV to sales is 1.8, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not expensive for a food company. And EBIT margin historically is like 18% that we're seeing there. Yeah. Um, or to take another way, you know, free cash flow we could take. So um, the free cash flow margin means that you got like a 6 or 7% free cash flow yield on that, giving today's sales if we take 11 and divide it into 1.8. Um, <clears throat> if it does grow organically 2 or 3% a year, right, and pays out all the free cash flow to you, you can see how you can get a 10% return. I don't know if it can organically grow 3% a year. I'm kind of doubtful about that about any food company. I mean, some food companies can if they can keep raising their prices, but if they can, I don't know. Um, then you have leverage here still to some extent, right? So uh, actually quite a bit of leverage right at the moment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, assets are four times equity. Debt to equity is two times. We can see that the price to sales is a third of the EV to sales, so that's significant. Um, EV to EBITDA is not that cheap, so if you want to buy this on like a leverage basis, you do well. Um, looks pretty normal on things like gross profit and stuff. The economics of these brands look normal to me. This seems like a bet on you like management and you like that they're using debt. You want it leveraged up. If you don't want whatever strategy they're using, leverage core, their capital allocation strategy mm-hmm. as a company leveraged up, don't buy this. If you like it, buy it. Uh, the business itself seems like a lot of other grocery businesses, I see. Got it. Last stock for the day, the Cheesecake Factory. And you also revisited this recently on the website, didn't you? Uh, I don't remember. I think you put up a... I did see Cheesecake Factory recently. Yeah, I think you you revisited the Cheesecake Factory. Market cap, $1.7 billion. Um, Do I have to explain what Cheesecake Factory is? I'm sure people know what Cheesecake Factory is. It's a a big restaurant. There you go. Um, Valuation uh, ratio, currently trading 18 times. EV to free cash flow, 8 times. 10-year median uh, margins on EBIT is 7.6%. Uh, EV to sales is 0.6, so kind of right in our wheelhouse, what we would like. Uh, 10-year median returns for return on equity, 
I'm sorry, we'll round up 18% 10-year uh, median returns for a return on invested capital, 20% 10-year cake on revenue, 3.8%, going from $1.6 billion in 2009 to $2.3 billion in 2018. Um, this is an interesting company study. It's been around for a very long time. It was founded mm-hmm. in 1972, and it's still ran by the same family. Yes. I, I believe, right? And I know they were diversifying, and um, they were trying to... Uh, I guess they were investing in some other concept. I think it was more of like a QSR or something. They, you know, they own the thing over in Legacy West, right? What is it? They have an option on it, North Italia or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, they've done that before, though. They have options on some stuff, and they've done some stuff in other um, countries testing out sort of concepts in some yeah. other countries. They do it very, I'd say, so far, they've done it very kind of conservatively, like, mm-hmm. you know, as options and things like that. Um, returns on capital and stuff here are much better than they are at the one that we looked at before, BJ's. Um, mm. Very consistent over a long period of time. I think the store I don't think have that business either. model works better. Yeah, they lease them, but you know, mm-hmm. people like them as a tenant in malls and things. Um, they've obviously had an incredibly hard time growing in the last 10 years, like terribly hard. So the same store still hasn't been going up and stuff. I could see why someone would be more interested in BJ's instead of in Cheesecake Factory because it's growing more. Trends might be more positive, same store sales, things like that, I would imagine. Uh, Long term, I like Cheesecake as a concept a lot better, but I don't know if, you know, popularity, fashion things, whatever, if people will like it as much. But if you were, like, just pitching me on what the store's business model was, uh, the economics of it, I like it a lot compared to most things in the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. So, and you can see that just in these numbers. And I this, mean, you can see how consistently high the returns on capital have been and things like that while opening up new stores, the free cash flow generation, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And the CEO and chairman, I, I believe he's like in his late 70s. So a lot of people were speculating that, you know, this would be a good uh, potential buyout for like a private equity firm and or something like, like that. Uh, probably 10 times free cash flow. Now, of course, it has yeah. the huge leases and stuff. So if it goes negative, it will go negative in a big way. You have to keep the same store sales positive at mm-hmm. something like this. But yeah, do a lot of scuttlebutt on it, figure it out. If you could figure out that Cheesecake Factory is going to be as popular in five or 10 years as it is now, mm-hmm. not less, then it would be a really attractive. Yeah. And a lot of the, I think a lot of the bear case was that, oh, they're in, you know, these A malls or whatever. And then yeah. how many people are going to continue to go to malls and blah, blah, blah. And stuff like that. But I have seen cheesecake factories that really acted more as a, like a standalone thing. It's not uh, that like they aren't attached to malls all the time. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. They def- I would assume they're the most exposed to malls of any restaurant I can mm-hmm. think of. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Which company today would you be most inclined to learn more about? Which do you think? Um, let's see. I mean, I would say, I mean, psychomedics, but you already looked at that. And Cheesecake Factory, which I've already <laughs> yeah. looked at. Okay. Uh, so Cheesecake Factory, so number is, one. We're psychomed- so fake. This was not a snap judgment uh, episode. Cheesecake Factory, number one. Psychomedics, number two. Maybe, maybe BJ's after that. Got it. Got it. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself on the number one most popular value investing podcast, the best value investing podcast in the world. My name is Andrew is Kuhn. <laughs> I'm sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Follow us on Twitter, at Focus Compound. Check out all of our work. Jeff has written about, I think, two or three of these stocks on the website. Mm-hmm. And if you do sign up, use the podcast promo code, which is podcast. If you like the work that we are doing here and you want to support us, you want to help us out, we have over 160 different episodes. Leave us a rating review. That goes a long way. Helps spread the word. We're having a lot of fun doing this. We are thinking of new ways to innovate and educate. That's our new model, innovate and educate. We hope everybody has a great day. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. 
I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along.